Welcome. Uh, I'm sure we'll have some other people come in over the course of the time. For those who are new, my name is Father Sibley, and I welcome you all to our guest first official credo lesson. For those who don't know, credo means I believe in Latin. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. This is technically, as we've been doing for years, our RCIA class. RCIA means the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. It is the process that we as Catholics use um, to introduce and teach people about the faith, to prepare them uh, to become Catholic. But what we thought we'd do this year is a couple of things a little different. One is we're going to make it open to whoever wanted to come. And so we have some people in here, and hope we'll get a chance to have you at least raise your hands, who are inquiring about either being baptized or becoming Catholic. So we're very happy to have you here. Plus, we just have people in general, um, individuals who want to learn more about their faith. So everybody is welcome. The second thing is, we had someone else teaching in previous years, but I decided I would like to try to give it a shot to teach this year. Hopefully, we'll be able to make this happen. We're kind of redoing the way we see RCIA, where not only did I teach uh, and give people a chance to learn what this is going to end up looking like, I really don't know. If you are here last week for Ask a Brisa Question, uh, as time goes on, hopefully we'll gain a deeper understanding and see where it goes. But for me, what's important is not only the, the teaching, but that's not all of what RCIA is. It is more importantly a, a process of journeying to come to find who Christ is and then be brought into his body, the church, where we do it, yes, as individuals, but more importantly, we do it as a community. And as I said last week, one of the big issues that we're having across the board in the church is that people who go through RCIA, who become Catholic, about uh, half of them after one year quit practicing the faith. They just stop. So something's obviously going wrong. Not necessarily just here, it's across the board, this is what happens. And I'm sure there are a lot of factors that we can't control and that's how it works. But one of the things that we see that are at places where people do stay is they plug into a community. We're gonna talk about that today. They don't try to do it alone. They try, don't try to go at it alone. And so the idea was to have people who are interested in becoming Catholic to study and to journey along with others who are, maybe this is going to help make them feel part of the community. So I hate to, to point anybody out to embarrass them, but who in here is uh, interested in either becoming baptized or becoming Catholic or coming to the church? Could you raise your hand? Maybe you are. We have a few people. Good. Some of you may have already been in contact with either Tim Trostler or Deacon Juan Pagan, but the way it's going to work is this. Uh, this first part that I'm going to teach from 6 till about 7.45, we'll have a little break in between, is open to everyone. It's sort of a catechetical lesson. I am going to ask, though, and this may not be the, the, the best thing that everybody likes, so that we can really focus on the people who want to become Catholic. Uh, I have lessons that I'm going to plan, and I may have sometimes for questions, but we're always going to try to give priority to questions to people who are interested in becoming Catholic. 
If you have other questions, we can talk about those maybe a little bit later on, or I could try to save some time for after. I don't want the lesson to get consumed and go off track because of a question, and that the person who really wants to or needs to know the faith doesn't get a chance to learn. Does that, do you all understand that? I hate to be a jerk about it, but I've been a priest for 18 years. I'm used to being a jerk. Uh, so what's going to happen is that after that class is over, afterwards, sometimes I'm going to have to leave. Like today, I have to go say mass. Deacon Juan Pagan, who you're going to meet, he's not here right now. But Deacon Juan Pagan is going to, with the team that we have, going to sort of work with you for about 20 minutes to a half an hour in answering questions and trying to make some practical applications uh, and to be able to make the faith come alive a little bit more because there's going to be a little bit more that y'all will have to go through. Does that make sense? So we decided last week that probably the best way to communicate uh, we, besides instead of a Facebook page is going to be via email. And we're like going back into 2005. So we have a sign-up sheet there. A lot of people signed up last week. So Katie, who is our director of formation, she's the person who really handles logistics. If she could take that sign-up sheet and pass it around, uh, and you can see it, maybe put it on the other page, where you can let me know if you're with RCIA, or you want to become Catholic, or you're just here to audit the class, uh, you can sign up in that way. I'm going to do my best to communicate every week I didn't send an email out last week. I don't know yet. A lot of it's going to depend upon my time schedule. I'm kind of crammed. I have five retreat talks to give this weekend, and I've written none of them, and it starts tomorrow. Hopefully, I will not ever have that happen again. <laughs> so that has derailed me a little bit, even though I've made preparations for this already. Um, that way, I'll send out an email. We'll try to send out an email once a week because all I can do in the hour and a half that I have is give sort of a very cursory overview of the specific topic. If you are interested in going deeper, whether it be with readings or with links to the internet or videos, I'll be able to put those on the email. So what I've done is I've constructed a Dropbox folder where I'll have each individual class and maybe a few readings, none of them too long. If you want to take and download a PDF form or if you want to watch the video, you're free to do that. Some I'll really highly encourage you to do. Uh, and there may be some more required reading for those individuals who are actually going through the process. The goal here is, is of course, for us to learn more about our faith so that we can grow in our love for Christ and the church but also that we have a better ability to spread the faith. Hopefully, I'm going to get a chance to know everybody in here. I know I'm going to be doing most of the teaching, but hopefully we'll all sort of get to know each other. I, if you know me, do not like to waste time. So if we all sat there and introduced ourselves and had a little shake hands party, uh, we'd consume about 25 minutes of our time, and we wouldn't be able to get to everything. If some of y'all who are standing want to get some chairs, or if you want to open those doors, we just didn't know how many people were going to show up today, unless you want to stand up for an hour and a half, which you probably don't want to do. But yeah, there are some seats there. You can be, Audrey, you can, all right, yeah. And some other people might come in. So does that, does that make sense? So let's begin this way. For those who want to engage in this, we're going to start a year long process from here 
until April, which really is going to culminate, at least for those who are journeying towards uh, learning their faith, right before Easter. We're going to have some stuff after Easter, what we call mystagogy, for those who are or have become Catholic and have come into the church. So as we begin this journey together, I'm going to record them and hopefully upload them to sort of a podcast. So you are free, if you miss a class, to be able to listen to it, to be able to share it with others. You can also fast forward through the boring parts uh, if you want to. But what are the tools that you're going to need, or what are the things that you're going to need? First of all, obviously, is a Bible. Um, you know, whether or not we start tear through Bible passages here, or you can do it at home, uh, there are all kinds of Bibles you can get, all right? What I would suggest are one of two. One is the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Again, why this is important that you're going to get one of these Catholic Bibles is because it will see Protestant Bible doesn't have all the same books that we do. So you're going to be like, hey, we're going to look at the Maccabees, and then you have the King James Bible. Guess what? It's not there. So the Revised Standard Version is a good one. Also, the New American Bible is another one that's recommended. Those are the two that most Catholics use. I'm not, going to, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not a stickler for translations. We basically can get the main idea of what we need to learn uh, when we do have scripture references. The other thing that is important, or I would suggest, is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This was published in 92, 93. It's really a compendium of everything essential that we believe as Catholics. And there's nicely referenced with paragraphs, and so a lot of times, like even today, I'm going to say, hey, I think you should look at Catechism numbers 25 to 50. So you'll be able to go there and pick it up and read it. There's also something that came out about 10 or 15 years ago called the Compendium of the Catholic Church. It's sort of a question and answer to this. It makes it a little bit easier, distills a little bit. I also suggest that might be something you purchase. Most everything else that I'm going to suggest is either going to be something you could read online, uh, an article that I'll put. Uh, I may suggest different books, and I know how people are today. How many of you read? No one. Everyone watches videos. Okay, some people read. So I'm going to try my best. There's because of YouTube and technology. There's so much great stuff out there uh, that really um, is valuable that you can watch a little video to learn a lot more from teachers who are are much better than I am. I I I am, and I'll be able to hopefully put the stuff online. You can click the link. I hate to say you're going to get massive overload of information. I'll try to do one a week. You watch what you want. Don't watch what you want. The only thing that will be required is for people who are going through RCIA, certain things will be required of them, OK? I'm sorry if the chairs are uncomfortable. If someone wants to donate about $5,000 for us to get new chairs, I'm happy to do so. Uh, but if not, you can stand up and stretch your legs. The goal would be we'd have about 45 minutes, a break, you get a little snack, walk around, and come back. I am, but I'm, I'm a taskmaster. If you, if you wait around and not back, I'm gonna start without you. So don't get offended, don't get upset. We just got a lot of ground to cover. All right. So let us begin. If you don't have any questions, let us begin with. I'm gonna do this a little differently, y'all, this semester or this year. It's peers. I, I don't want to just sit here and read a bunch of boring things to you. I'd like to have somewhat of a dialogue if we can. 
But to look at the faith and to present it in a way that is intellectually stimulating, is spiritually stimulating, but it's not just me reading passages from the Bible and reading passages from the catechism. You can do that at home. I hate when people do that. And to be able to engage a lot of the difficult questions that, that uh, issues we face and the hard questions a lot of people have. A lot of the times you can ask me a question, but probably the best might be through email where I can say, check this link and read it. If I don't give you a long explanation, that's because I may be getting 50 different questions and I just like to be succinct and terse. But what we're gonna do over the course of the year is we're gonna follow the basic outline of the catechism. Catechism does a great job of sort of condensing the faith. The first section is on the creed. You know, when you go to mass, uh, we, we recite the creed, if you've been to Mass. We're going to go over those essential elements of the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to explain, kind of condense everything that we really believe, and give us a brief overview. From that, we're going to go and begin looking at the sacraments, the seven sacraments of the Church, liturgy and worship. After that, we're going to look at morality and the acting person and deal with some specific moral issues. And then finally, we are going to deal with the issue of prayer. And so, since we are in a church, this is Deacon Juan Pagan, for those who don't know him. Deacon is my faithful assistant. Uh, Deacon Pagan has a great love for, for catechism and for RCA. Why don't we go ahead and start with prayer, and in the most essential prayer that we as Christians and Catholics know. Uh, we're going to look at this more as time goes on, but it is the Our Father. It's the prayer that Jesus taught us. If you don't know it, you can, we're, you're going to learn it, uh, and you can pray along with us. Uh, but it's us given that ability to call God our Father and to make this very basic intercession. So we're going to begin uh, with that prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very basic, you know, as Catholics, we usually start all prayer with the sign of the cross, the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, in a certain sense, really uh, encapsulates what the most essential elements of our belief are, the belief of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is one God in three persons, and then in the sign of the cross, that our salvation comes through the cross of Jesus. And so you have it all really there, and that's why we do it. And we do it in our bodies because we're non-angels. It's one of the things you're going to see. Catholics believe the body is important, is good. And the way we live at our faith is in our bodies. And so to do these different gestures we call sacramentals uh, help us to really live out our faith. <clears throat> so we're going to start with the creed. But the first two words that the creed gives us is I believe. And so I always love that about the catechism. Before it gets into anything, the catechism looks at the act of faith, what belief is, and what it means to believe. And so when it comes to, for this lesson, what I would encourage you to read in the catechism, and if you're going to be taking notes, this is something to write down, 
Catechism sections 20, numbers 26 to 49, or actually we'd say paragraphs. Uh, catechism, each paragraph is numbered. So you go to the beginning and you could read 26 through 49, which is going to give the very basic introduction to faith and belief. One of the things that uh, you're going to hear over the course of this year is I'm going to try to draw from a number of different sources. But clearly, besides the Bible and the Catechism, the source that I'm going to have the most reference to are the various writings of Pope Benedict XVI, the Pope Emeritus. Remember, he was Pope before Pope Francis. Before he became Pope, he was called Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, the German theologian, uh, bishop, cardinal, and pope. Uh, and a lot of what we're going to talk about today, and in fact, part of the reading that I'm going to offer you, is from his book from the late 60s called Introduction to Christianity. Any of you really want to delve a little bit deeper in theology and the faith, um, I would suggest you get this book. What I'm going to offer in the Dropbox uh, beginning of the first chapter of Introduction to Christianity. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I was so always been so struck by this book, particularly when I read it. Because not only the Ratzinger is just a fantastic author, because he starts off the book not by saying we believe in God, Jesus, all this kind of good stuff. Oh, Y'all might want to take some seats for there. Why, why don't you open the doors so that people can sit in there if they have to? I'm sorry we're so crowded. We do have two seats right there, and we have one right there, and we have one right there. So you certainly can't sit down. Is he just goes right after it. And he says, it is very, very difficult for us to believe in the world today. If you thought it was true in 1969, it's even truer today. And I have a terrible memory. can't remember a lot of things. But I've always been able to remember two stories that he tells in this chapter. And the passage that you're going to see online, uh, you can read these two stories. The first one is the story by a philosopher, a Danish philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard. You don't need to know who Kierkegaard is, at least not yet. Now he tells the story of the circus that comes to town. And before the circus happens, the circus tent catches on fire. And so everybody is trying to put the fire out, but the person that they choose, the person who chooses to go into town to tell the people, we need help, the circus is on fire, is the clown. Now, of course, this is before it and Pennywise, the clowns were creepy back then. <laughs> But this guy in the clown outfit runs into town and is like saying, everybody, the church is on fire. And the church, the circus is on fire. And everybody starts laughing because he's a clown. And that's back in the day when people thought that clowns were funny. Now they would just run away and scream. <laughs> but they thought it was a gimmick. He's saying that the circus is on fire because they want everybody to come out there to see the tent. And so he's like the boy who cried wolf, except he wasn't crying wolf. He's screaming and yelling. No one listens to him. They laugh at him. They ridicule until finally the circus tits burns down and it's over. And this is what he starts this whole book with. Is he says this is sort of a great way of understanding the position of the believer today. We're like the clown trying to say the circus is on fire, not necessarily the world is coming to an end. We're trying to convey a message that we think is so important and people think we're nuts. It doesn't make any sense. And again, if that was true then, it is very, very much true now. I'm not saying that nobody believes, but 
it's difficult often to convey the faith. But that's just communicating the faith. He then goes to talk on about how difficult it is to believe. And so he gives another story by probably the most prominent Jewish philosopher of the last century, Morton Buber. And Buber tells a story, and I'm, I'm kind of like condensing it. This story I've told a zillion times, you've probably heard me tell it before. This guy is an atheist. And the atheist struggling with belief, he doesn't believe in God, you know, evil in the world, studied science, he studied the great philosophers like Nietzsche, he doesn't believe. And he goes into this rabbi's office, and the rabbi's, you know, reading his Bible, he's reading his Torah, and he says to him, you know, Rabbi, I'm here to tell you that I don't believe in God because of reason A, B, C, D, and E. It's all a farce. What do you have to say? Convince me that God exists. And the rabbi, you know, took his glasses off and closed his Bible and looked at him, and he said one word. And that one word was perhaps. Perhaps. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps it's all for us. Perhaps there's no God, there's no morality, there's no purpose. And I can't prove any differently. I can demonstrate why I believe, but perhaps it's all false. But he said, perhaps it's all true. Perhaps there is a God. Perhaps what the Bible says is true. Perhaps this is all true. And you're wrong, even though I can't fully explain it. And so what Ratzinger says is something that's always profoundly struck me, that the believer and the unbeliever share the perhaps. We both certainly have faith. We don't have 100% knowledge. I have 100% knowledge of this table is here. But perhaps when it comes to the faith, perhaps we've got to go wrong. And if we, if we're going to be honest believers, particularly in the world today, we're going to have to face that. It's so easy for us to say, oh, these atheists are crazy. Just like the atheist, it's so easy for to say, oh, you believers are crazy, and sort of build up these straw men and just tear them down. Instead of saying, you know what? Faith is a struggle. It's hard to believe, particularly in the world that we have today, and particularly because of the very nature of what faith is. We're going to get into more of like faith as a virtue, faith as a gift. But what is faith ultimately? Scripture tells us, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. It's things you can't see. It's God. It's the spiritual. It's angels. It's demons. It's whatever you want to call. So today we're looking at faith in general, like maybe a structure of belief, whether it be an organized religion or just sort of belief in a deity or deities in general. It is not easy for us to believe. Would you all agree with that? And so I, I want to come at this position not like maybe they did 150 years ago. This is the faith. God exists. Every truth in the Catholic truth is self-evident. And hey, you just need to believe. As we're going to see, it's a journey. We want to question. In fact, the beginning part of RCAA is a search, is an inquiry, is questioning. And so never, never, never be afraid to question. I would say there are no stupid questions, but there are some stupid questions. <laughs> I just don't think you would ask any stupid questions. I have heard some stupid questions. Trust me. So what is it? You know, Ratzinger talks about, like, believing today is like the cross. He's a cross hanging over an abyss. 
There's that faith, I believe in Jesus, and under it, it seems like there's nothing. Why is it so hard to believe today? Now, granted, I could go on for an hour about this, but there are a number of sort of reasons that at least come to mind first. One is this, that faith seems to be irrelevant, not really necessary, even maybe a thing of the past. Why do you need faith today? It used to be, well, we need faith to pray whenever you were sick, for God to come and heal this person. Now you go to the doctor. Oh, faith, Lord, please give us manna from heaven. You know, provide us food. We're starving. You go down to Albertsons. Lord, you know, do whatever for me. You know, control the weather so the storm doesn't come. But we have homes where you could be safe in. Well, why do we need God? It seems like superstition. It seems like a past, something from the past that is not necessary today. And in fact, it's even the believers, this is something that I think is an interesting fact that I've talked about before. Even those who claim to believe in God, how much does your belief in God actually impact your day-to-day life? We make, we said an Our Father today, we say blessings before meals, but how many of us really depend on God on a day-to-day basis? Very few, very few because most of our needs are taken care of. And even in the cases where the needs aren't taken care of, it's very easy to make the argument that, that, that religion is the opium of the people. You just do it to find meaning in your life, but the reality is there's no meaning. I think the biggest struggle in here is probably not that anybody's necessarily an atheist, but it is the practical atheism. It's just what our life leads us to of just, I don't really need God. Why do I need to have faith? You used to say, well, God punishes the people who are, are unfaithful. Look at all the very happy, relatively successful people who completely don't believe in God and live completely hedonistic lifestyles. We could say these nice, pious phrases, but quite often, quite often, reality shows us something very different. Reality shows us something very, very different. Another could say, well, faith, I listen to, do you ever listen to, I'm, you know, listen to podcasts, um, what was the one called Hidden Brain? It's an NPR podcast. You ever listen to that? They did one uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, about this argument about how faith in God actually is a process of evolution. That as people evolved and societies evolved, then they needed this belief in God to bring about a certain cohesion, to stop evil behavior, and to bring about good behavior. It's very, very interesting, and I encourage you to listen to it. It makes some very good points. And whether or not I agree with it all, I'm not really going to comment on that so much not right now, but it's an interesting thing, is that some will argue, well, it's just a process of evolution. We created this idea of God. Faith came about uh, because there was so much violence and uncertainty in the world. But now we're living in a time of relative peace, of relative health, uh, of relative stability. We don't need God. And we can show through sociological and uh, biological studies that it came as a result of evolutionary psychology. And then one of the big things that you'll see is even though people say Faith, God doesn't exist, but even worse, look at all the evil things people have done in the name of God. Wars and fighting and genocide and all this terrible kind of stuff. And indeed, this has existed. Now, of course, the counter argument is let's look at the, all the evil things people have done because of reason. Let's look at the toll of communism 
and that was done on the exact opposite. So the, the two maybe sort of balanced themselves out. You can give a bunch of other reasons. I mean, what are some of the other reasons that you may have heard or you may know or you may think uh, of arguments against faith? There, there, okay, so there are there, they exist. Maybe, look, y'all are taking my, my heat. Y'all want to get information, you just don't want to have a discussion. It's fine. <laughs> so these are the generally arguments against faith, which are based in, or sort of connected to, I would say, some deeper issues. Deeper issues that we face in the 21st century. Stuff that maybe we are not fully aware of, but over time have contributed to these struggles. One is, and this is some stuff that Ratzinger will talk about if you read uh, the book, is something I'd like to talk a fair bit about over the course of our time together, is philosophy. You know, Catholics, we believe, as you're going to see today, in the power and the necessity of the mind, of human reason. Philosophy is the study of wisdom. And so along with theology, which is the study of God, you all always are encouraged to study philosophy, uh, ethics, we call epistemology, uh, metaphysics. These are all different branches of philosophy. And we go back to Aristotle and Plato and the great philosophers, and we go through Augustine and Aquinas, and there's a great history of philosophy. But what's happened is, is our philosophy over time has changed. We're no longer do we really focus on the deep questions, what we call the metaphysical questions. Metaphysics means above the physical world. Like, what is the purpose of this thing? Why does this happen? What is the meaning of life? I'm not saying that we don't discuss that, but philosophy has become very, for a number of different reasons, very practical and very empirical. Worried about politics, worried about empiricism, worried about utilitarian thinking, about how we can use and do things. Not very interested in the deeper questions. And granted, I'm reducing this quite significantly, and maybe we will have a class in philosophy. But things have changed. It, it's, it's, it's now, because of the philosophical system and the way it's come in through guys like Descartes and Kant and whatnot, these deeper questions are not really addressed as much. They're there, they're important, but we've seen a shift in philosophy away from these deeper metaphysical questions into a certain denial that the metaphysical realm, the realm of the spirits, the realm of purposes, the realm of causes, don't even really exist anymore. The key, though, the most important tie to that is, is, is we begin to advance as time went on and, and to understand the world and understand philosophy and this moved on, it gave rise to a lot of good things. Whereas before, oh, this is superstition, uh, philosophy and religion are too connected. Well, because of what we call the Enlightenment, we're able to move forward, and we have all these wonderful advances of science. Never, ever think that I don't think science is a good thing. I like the fact we're in an air-conditioned room. I like my cell phone. I like to be able to have medicine. I'd probably be dead by now if it wasn't the case. I like these things. But what happened is, along with this shift in philosophy, we had this shift where now, all of a sudden, we can control the world. We can control our bodies, we can control creation, we can begin using engineering to build better things, we have medicine, we have technology, we have all this stuff that makes the world much easier. 
and solves a lot of problems. But along with it comes a very technical type of technical thinking. Science, as we talked about earlier, becomes sort of the god or a certain type of religion. And we understand better about the world. And some people might say, well, because of science technology now, of course, we also understand biology better. There's the theory of evolution. And so uh, how could we come from apes? As you're going to see a little bit later, the Bible tells us to come from mud. I don't see why one is worse than the other. We're going to get into that a little bit later on. We have all these new scientific studies. We have these things we understand. Well, well, how can God exist? And it's just much more difficult to believe in God because of that, the world in which we live. Plus, we're a much more educated society as a result of it. We're going to ask a lot of questions that quite possibly people didn't ask 500 years ago because they were too busy surviving. They were too busy reproducing and doing things. I'm not saying that these people were stupid. They weren't as educated as we were. And they weren't necessarily encouraged to ask the same type of questions, at least on a mass level or a mass basis. A lot of times people just say, well, the priest said it. Well, I'm going to believe it. That surely is not the case today. And then, of course, one of the big issues, and a lot of these things we're going to look at next time when we talk about the existence of God, is this massive crisis of faith, even though we can say the building blocks were built in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th century, the building blocks were there. What happens in the 20th century? You got World War I, you have World War II, the Holocaust, the rise of communism. Tens, if not over 100 million people dead. This, 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 in a certain sense, particularly after World War II, brought, at least in the United States, a lot of faith to people. But in the continent, in Europe, it destroyed the faith of a lot of people. How could God allow this? God is dead. What, where is God? And so there's some real serious questions that come along with that. How would God tolerate this? How could we do this if we're made in the image and likeness of God? And so it seemed that God is dead. And now, you know, where is God? Why is he stopping evil? Why do people, why do terrible tragedies happen? Why doesn't God intervene? All of these are very valid questions that contribute to this struggle with the belief in the existence of God. Have you all heard these before? And so, again, I'm not trying to sound like a Debbie Downer here or that faith is impossible. I certainly believe faith is possible and is necessary. But this is the, the milieu in which we're called to believe. And so I can choose to ignore this and say, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what, this is what St. Thomas Aquinas taught. You just need to believe it. It should completely make sense, but it doesn't work that way. I'm not saying that anything I'm going to say over the course of the next year is going to make any sense to you. <laughs> but at least I'm going to give it a shot. So what I want to do, though, is we proceed today. We're going to take a break in a, in a few moments. I know that the frenzy of wine is making you all very thirsty. <laughs> Looking at that. It is the real key is faith and science. How many of you all are familiar with Bishop Robert Barron? I'm going to reference Bishop Barron a lot here. Bishop Barron is like, I guess, the Fulton Sheen without the dramatic flair. Uh, for those who Fulton Sheen is. He's brilliant, and he's a good man. And, and one of the videos I'm going to reference is he's been running for about 10 years this YouTube channel. And he says that in his years of doing YouTube and the comments and questions, the number one, and he promotes the Catholic faith, the number one 
question or struggle that he sees that people have deals with faith and science. And how can you believe in science and math and technology and still have faith? And in fact, they are seemingly incompatible. And so a lot of his work is trying to show why they're not. And in fact, not because of him, but he's helped to, to, to do this. There have been a number of people who've popped up. Another, Father Robert Spitzer, who's actually around before, priests or lay people who are brilliant. These guys are not stupid. Trying to show why faith and science are not irreconcilable. Again, because of the time constraint, I'm not going to have a lot of time to get into details, but I will reference and encourage you to listen to some of these podcasts, to watch some of these videos. Particularly, Father Spitzer's got some unbelievably great ideas and arguments for being a scientist and being a, a Christian, a Catholic, or a believer. Because only this is the, this, I'm going to reduce this as simply as I possibly can. If science is the study of the universe and the laws of creation. But they're there, and we discover them, and we, of course, probably continually discover them a lot better. And if we believe in God, then arguably those rules and those processes were permitted by the Lord, or at least put there by him. Even evolution, if indeed evolution is true, well, then he permitted it. So what's the big deal? If there's really a God, then there's a way to reconcile these two things. It may be a challenge, it may be difficult, but we should be able to see, and we're going to talk about this next time, in the order of creation, a creator. Someone who put the rules, the structures there. We, can, we should be able to discern that. It may be a struggle for us to put the two together, but just because maybe we came from apes, or maybe they're black holes, or maybe we could have come from nothing, whatever, doesn't mean there's not a God. We have the burden of proof to demonstrate that God exists, but the two can work together. And probably, for at least my opinion, some of the greatest arguments of the fact that both science and religion can and do work together is the fact that a lot of our greatest scientists have been believers and have been Catholics. So you've heard of the Copernican Revolution. Copernicus, the great astronomer physicist who discovered or posited heliocentrism. Well, then it's not the Earth is the center of the universe, but actually the solar system, the, the, the sun is, and we revolve around the sun. He was a believer. Not only, some will argue that he became a Catholic priest. Now, what about George Lemaitre? Never heard of the name George Georges Lemaitre. He was a Belgian physicist. Do you know what he discovered or gave? The Big Bang. He was a Catholic priest. The Big Bang theory was proposed by a Catholic priest who was a friend of Einstein. Einstein didn't buy it at first, from what I understand, but then after explained it, oh, this works with relativity, the general relativity theory. Another interesting name, Gregor Mendel, the father of modern genetics also a Catholic priest. So you can go through online now and see all these different great Christians and Catholics who are, who are, who are, who are great intellects, great men of faith, but also great scientists. They are not irreconcilable. 
But what's happened is this narrative has come about, and a lot of it focused around Galileo and the trial of Galileo. I could give you some references so you can better understand that. And Galileo was tied into the whole, he was the heliocentrism along with Copernicus. At the beginning, there were a lot of people who agreed with him. The issue became, though, that one passage in scripture, one of the main passages of scripture, where in Joshua, where it seems to say that the sun stopped. And how do you reconcile science with the Bible? They were trying to work it out. There were some different agreements or disagreements that were made. But A, it's much more complicated than you think it was. There were certain individuals who were against it. But it's one case. One case people continually bring up. Well, I could bring up George Lemaitre. I could bring up Gregor Mendel. I could bring up Copernicus. I could bring up all these other names to show that there is a history of science in the church. Right now, one of uh, my good friends and Katie's good friends, Dr. Christopher Bagelow, who taught at Notre Dame Seminary, is now teaching at Notre Dame in South Bend. And he is working at this institute there for science and faith. Uh, Father Robert Spitzer, I'll give you the link, he has the Magis Institute. Uh, he has some wonderful things to show how science and religion can go together. Father Barron, though, has some really, really good stuff to show why they can go together. And so the challenge is, I never want you to think like you can't mention science, or if you have questions, certainly you can bring them up. I'm not a scientist. I can't promise you that I can answer them, but we'll do our best to sort of try to analyze them and look at them, uh, and I can at least sort of point you in directions where you can address these issues. Is it a challenge? Yes, but they are not irreconcilable. And just as faith and science are not irreconcilable, you want to sign that? Just as faith and science are not irreconcilable, the real key here is, and we're going to wrap, we're going to do this whole part, then we'll wrap it up and kind of move on. And I take a little break. Faith and reason are not. This is the real key. And this is what, for me, is the essential element of our, our, our lesson today. As difficult as much of the challenges we have, and we're going to face a lot of these challenges of believing today, we don't want to run away from them. The key thing for Catholics, and hopefully certain other denominations of Christians, is that Catholics do not believe in blind faith. You've heard of blind faith. I just believe. That is so contrary to what we as Catholics believe. Certainly faith is belief in things that are not seen, but we don't believe in blind faith, nor we believe in fundamentalism. The Bible says it, or the church says it, so you just believe. That is contrary to what we believe. Even more, we believe is contrary to the human person because we have minds. We have intellects. There are certain things that we're not gonna be able to understand. We've gotta face the mystery, but our faith is ultimately reasonable. So that's, for me, that's an important distinction. You won't understand everything. Faith in a certain sense makes us go beyond reason, but our faith is reasonable. We can understand it. We can explain it. We can talk about it. It's not just like, oh, I believe, we can't talk about it. Or you have to believe because it's an act of the will. Certainly, we have to make a choice. We've got to take ownership, but our faith is reasonable. If I had my, my bulletin board here, or I guess I have it right there, but maybe next time we can have it on the stand. The, the, the Latin phrase, fides, F-I-D-E-S, fides, means faith. 
Quarens, like fidelity, faithiness, Quarens, Q-U-A-R-E-N-S, like a query is a, is a seeking, a quarry is a place where you seek things, you seek rocks or whatever. Intellectum, intellectum, the intellect, understanding. It's faith seeking understanding. And so this is the whole purpose of this credo. These are the things we believe we're going to try to understand. You've got to want to understand them. You've got to ask the questions necessary and to chase the clues down where they are. But we are here to try to seek understanding. We are not fundamentalists. And so we use our reason, as we're going to see. Paul tells us that we can look at the universe and discern a creator behind the universe, behind the laws that are there. And from the creation, we can come to discern a creator. We won't know everything about him, but we can use our reason to talk about who God is, about what his traits are, to understand how he reveals us. Not fully and not completely, but we can have a deeper understanding of who God is by pursuing creation, but as we're going to see, by the fact that we believe, and this is what's so crucial, that God has revealed himself to us. God has, over history, spoken to us, revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can grasp. And that it's a challenge, but we need to go on that pursuit. Because, and this is something so important to call Ratzinger, one word, the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. The Gospel of John, the word became flesh. Logos is Greek for word. And it's a word that is central to the New Testament. The, the Son of God who becomes man is the word of God that is spoken to us. What, what English word has its logos as its root? Logic. Not that it's always logical, but it's a word that's spoken. We receive the word, we speak back. Dialogos, the, the dialogue. And so when something is, the word is spoken, we can use our reason. And that's one of the reasons that we believe that Greek philosophy became so popular and integral to understanding the faith. Because they developed reason, they understood philosophy, and able to take the Jewish teaching and sort of connect it to uh, the teaching of the Greeks. So we could better, we had the faith, we had what Jesus taught us, we had what was in scripture, but we could better understand it. And so it is our reason that helps us to grasp the logos, but we believe, as Christians at least, that we have the capacity for God, the capacity to understand, the capacity to receive him, not fully, not completely, but that we can have communion with him. We're never going to understand it all. We're never even in heaven going to fully grasp the immensity of God is as eternity. As much as there may be light and there may be understanding, there's always going to be darkness. We're going to talk about that more with faith. But if you believe faith is belief in something you cannot see, there's always going to be an element of an inability to apprehend. There's always going to be darkness. So people think, well, so-and-so has this great faith because he's never struggles, he never wrestles with the faith. No, that means he has sight. You know, do I, do I wrestle or struggle with the fact that this candle is here? No, I don't. I can see it. But if all of a sudden it was dark and I saw that it was lit and I saw a light, maybe the candle's there, 
Maybe it's a fairy. Maybe it's a light Jumba, a light bug, a lightning bug. I have no idea because of the darkness. And so there's going to be darkness. And in fact, the truth is, when we study Christian mysticism, the more you advance in faith, the more difficult it will become. The darker it becomes. This is when everybody leaves and takes off. <laughs> but it was the scripture of the day when Jesus talks about it in the gospel. This is my body and blood. They found it difficult to believe and they left. A lot of them left, but some of them stayed. Why? Because we believe you have the words of eternal life. And we're going to see that in a little bit. So the thing is, is I think probably one of the best analogies that we can use for faith, and particularly faith in the modern world, is that passage from the Old Testament where Jacob, sorry, it's Jacob wrestles with the angel. And at nine, he's wrestling with him. Faith is going to be a wrestling match. It never becomes easy. Sometimes a little bit easier than others. Sometimes, you know, you've got little figure four on, on faith. Sometimes it's going to have the suplex on you. If you ever watched any Mid-South wrestling, you know how it goes. But it's going to be a struggle. But we've got to be in it because it's worth it. And then in the next life, after we pass from this life to the next, of course, we're going to have vision, and hopefully it all makes sense. So what I want to do is we're going to take a little break for about five minutes. 6.55, five minutes, stretch your legs, have some franzia, and uh, we'll come back and then wrap it out. If you all have any particular questions, you can come to me during the break, and I'll do my best to answer. All right, so we're going to commit. We're going to go back. Uh, I realize that this class, some of you may say, well, I'm never coming back again. This is the most theoretical class we're going to get into. It really is. Uh, when we start getting into the existence of God, when we start looking at the Bible and creation, when we start looking at the sacraments, I love theoretical stuff, so this is my favorite class. Uh, but don't judge the rest of it by this. Uh, you know, Bobby made a question, a question the, 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 the break, which I think I understood what he said. There are a lot of distinctions. Is it important for us to question and ask questions? Fetus, cords, intellectum, yes. But questions don't necessarily mean doubt. Now, is it, will we doubt? Will we have doubts and struggles? Absolutely. But I want to make the distinction between I'm trying to understand more and I'm having doubts. But the same thing is, is it normal to have doubts? Yes. But what's what you do with the doubts? If you sit there and let them fester, I say, well, I don't believe anymore. Well, what are you doing to try to figure it out? What are you trying to do to understand? And we'll talk about the importance of trying to understand and deal with those doubts uh, in a little bit. Do you have any other questions or comments from what the first half was? Because the truth is, what I kind of, it almost seems, and I think it's one way that the church has done it, that faith seems to be focused mortally in here. We talk about faith and reason, where it becomes the understanding of or the assent to different propositions. There are three persons in one God. Mary was a, a virgin and a mother. And there, that, there is. The intellect engages. We need to. We have faith in a way that other creatures that don't have intellects do not engage in the same way. But one of the problems is, is if that's all faith is, is an intellectual exercise, if it's just the mind understanding things, or even when we get to heaven, we talk about the beatific vision where you see God and you comprehend him as much as your mind can as he is. Faith is much more than that. Faith, to really enter into what faith is, is more than assent to an intellectual proposition. 
So as much as I'm gonna say, and we're gonna believe that faith needs to be reasonable, it is belief in a message. This is such a, one of the readings I'm gonna give you is from a German Catholic philosopher called Joseph Pieper. Brilliant analysis on faith. He said, yeah, faith is belief in a message. There are certain propositions you, this is not the massage, it's a message. You've got to believe. This is the message, certain propositions. But the fact of the matter is, where does the message come from? Where does a message come from? The messenger. So you're not going to believe in the message unless you trust the messenger. Unless you know the messenger. So if someone you don't even know comes to you and says, hey, aliens landed in your backyard, you're going to think this guy's crazy. But if it's someone you know and you love and you trust and they tell you aliens landed in your backyard, you still may think they're crazy. But you'll be more likely to believe them because you have a relationship with the messenger. And I think this is something that, that we forget about. Would you mind closing the door? That we forget about. Or if you don't pass to that deeper level, your faith can collapse. In general, faith in, 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 things that are, in things that we cannot see, particularly faith in a revealed message. Because we're talking about not just comprehending God, but here we're talking about the revealed message that God reveals himself to Israel, that God reveals himself to us in Jesus. Jesus reveals a certain truth. You got to have a relationship, and you got to know the messenger, and you got to believe the messenger is trustworthy. You can't have the message without the messenger. And so, for Christianity, and particularly for Catholicism, so yeah, we can talk about faith in general. Faith is a struggle for Buddhists or Muslims, or whatever. <clears throat> Possibly so, but their faith is different. And one of the things you'll see for a lot of the times for certain fundamentalist sects, whether it be Christian or Muslim, whatever, faith is what we call fundamentalism or voluntarism. From the Greek, uh, the Latin voluntas, which means will. You just believe. You don't worry about understanding. You just believe. Catholics are not like that. We believe that there's an intellectual sense of the message. And the will comes in because you have a relationship with and you know and you love the messenger. And so the messenger for us is going to be Christ, Jesus, as you're going to see, and also the church. The apostles will get into that more as time goes on. But ultimately for Jesus, it's about a relationship. Faith above and beyond anything is a relationship with a person, relationship with God the Father who reveals himself to his son and pours out the spirit. The people who have the strongest faith, even though it may be dark, are the ones who have a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Because as dark as it gets, as bad as you can't understand, you may not see him, but you know he's there. You know you can follow him. You know he's a real person. And that's what's so important. Belief in the messenger. So true faith, but at least a faith that I think lasts, even when the darkness and the struggles come, engages the head, but it engages the heart. It engages the intellect, but it also engages the will. Ultimately, we don't just believe as disembodied minds. 
Nor is faith just, oh, I have this great experience of Jesus and his love for me, and that's it. But either of those will completely crumble. It engages the whole person, the head and the heart. I mean, you've met people who faith is nothing more than an intellectual engagement. There's really no heart. It's legalistic, it can often be cold, and something happens, a lot of times suffering and pain, boom, it crumbles. The other person who never engages the intellect, but just kind of goes with the feelings, and then all of a sudden those go away, then it crumbles. Faith engages the whole person. The whole person, intellect and will, body and soul, believe. And what the point is, is that even though it may not make sense to some, that not only I can potentially sit here and try to convince you, we're going to look at this a little bit later next time, I can try to do my best to give you all the arguments for why God exists and why you should be Catholic. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of people don't believe because of that. You've had intellectual conversions, and we need intellectual conversions and people that can reason and dialogue and engage and study philosophy and theology. But what leads most people to believe is what? Is a relationship. Right or wrong? It's what makes people believe. Hopefully you go from relationship to a deeper understanding. But the person walks in, hey, it's great to meet you. Or I'm willing to love you and sacrifice for you. I can tell you the stories that I've experienced of husbands and wives, or one's an unbeliever, but the other spouse, because they loved them and cared for them and witnessed to them the deeper message of the gospel, not just intellectual truths, the person ended up converting. And so that's why I think for me is the most important. I could teach whoever's in here wanting to become Catholic or wanting to become a Christian. I can teach you everything you want. But if other people in this room don't love you and don't reach out and make you feel welcome and say, I'm really glad to have you here and stick by you and support you, then guess what? It all crumbles. It all crumbles. And so love is often much more convincing of an argument than any intellectual proposition. Now, just as some people's minds are closed down, as we'll see, I'll have saying, you can't reason someone out of a position that you didn't, they didn't reason themselves into in the first place. A lot of people's minds are closed off. They haven't arrived there, but a lot of people's hearts are closed off. And so it makes it very, very difficult for them to move forward. Mary Magdalene in scripture, we'll, we'll look at her. Why did she believe? Not because Jesus gave her an argument, because Jesus loved her and forgave her her sins. And from that experience, she came to believe in a much deeper way. Both are valid and both are legitimate because they approach the whole person. So what does that do, though? If it shows you, you go from message to messenger to person, faith implies a relationship. And this is one of the things, I gave you a section from Ratzinger's uh, Introduction to Christianity and Belief in the World Today, and it deals with the struggle or the dilemma of faith. The second chapter, which is interesting, uh, which I didn't copy, it's called the ecclesiastical form of faith. Ecclesiastical means dealing with the church, how we believe as a church. But its whole point is that there's no such thing as believing alone. It's always believing in relationship and communion. I've done work with college students now for eight years, going my ninth, into my ninth year, and I've preached on it a zillion times. The number one thing 
from my experience for a college student maintaining their faith from freshman year to they graduate. Because I think something like 80% leave or 75% leave is not, well, Father gave a really great homily or intellectual ascent is relationship. If they have friends, small group or large group, that support them, that love them, that feel safe in, they will maintain their faith and hopefully grow in their faith, both in their head and their heart. Faith cannot exist in a vacuum. It has to exist in relationship. And as he talks about in here, it points to this truth that we never believe on our own. You know, rarely, if ever, does someone just philosophically understand, I believe in God. They encounter someone. They're taught by someone. They read a book. There's some message that is communicated to them by another messenger. Someone's there to teach, to hand it on. All of us in here, if you were raised Catholic, how did you receive your faith? You received it from somebody else. Your parents taught you, your catechism taught you, whatever. So almost in a certain sense, the handing on of faith, relationship is implied. And so if we're gonna see our faith grow, if we're gonna sort of overcome the hurdle of the faith, there needs to be a relationship. I'm not saying it re replaces the intellectual struggles or we just say, oh, everybody loves me, God exists. I'm not saying that at all. But it has to be done in communion. And then not only do we receive the gift of faith, because we're gonna talk about that faith is ultimately a gift that God gives us. We receive the message from others. We've got to be open to receiving it. And a lot of times we're not. Prejudice in our mind, woundedness in our heart. The relationship has to go both ways. We're not just taking, taking, taking. We've got to be willing to give back, whether it be to God, or whether it be to the church, whether it be to our, our worshiping, our believing community. And so what he does is in the book, he, he gives us this wonderful example about the creed and the way our creedal formulas, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, all these things we believe originally came from early baptismal liturgies, when the early Christians were baptized. And even for those who will be baptized, or are interested in being baptized, or those here who have been to like an Easter vigil. Do you ever remember when you, do, you, go to a, you go to a baptism of a baby or an Easter vigil, how, do we ever recite the creed? No, we don't. It's a question. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? I do. And this is questioning. He says, the fact that in the liturgy, we'll talk about how the liturgy embodies our faith, there's this series of questioning shows us we don't believe alone. Even though we recite the creed as a whole, as a church, in the baptism of liturgies in the earliest days, it was a dialogue. It was a question. and implied more than one people. and implied a community. and implied a relationship. He even uses the word symbol. <coughs> symbol from the Greek words symbolain, which means to throw together. And so symbolon is the, the Greek word for creed, the symbol of our faith. And so he uses this idea that nobody has the faith by themselves. We, we, we put the pieces together from different parts of scripture, from different parts of tradition, but from different relationships. It's thrown together so we come to the one whole. And so there needs to be that relationship there needs to be the love, there needs to be the engagement with other people. And ultimately, we believe as a church, Christ saves us not as an individual, but as a church. 
But in our very individualistic society, and I guess I could tie that back into what we talked about at the beginning about the struggle of faith, that's really, really difficult for us. Because I like to do it by myself. It's me and Jesus. It's never just you and Jesus. It's never just you and God. Because you, you come from your mama and your dad. We worship together. We gather together. We need each other, and we're based in love. So if we're talking about this, the message, the relationship, and that love is at the heart of it, even though the intellect is engaged too, can we ever force anyone to believe? Is that possible? No, you can't. I mean, over the history, you know, you've seen it. Renounce Christ or we'll kill you. Or testify to your faith or you'll be punished. Quit being a heretic. The truth is it just it doesn't work. Faith is to believe, choose to believe whether to be in a proposition or the person of Jesus Christ, you can never be forced. Never be forced. But faith, probably more than anything else, is an exercise of human freedom. And we're going to talk a lot about freedom, particularly when we get to morality. We are free beings, even though, yes, our genes and our upbringing determine our behavior to a certain degree. There are certain things we can't change. But we're free, and we've got to make a choice. A choice to believe, a choice to love, a choice to understand, a choice to question. That God is never going to force us. Never going to force us. And again, we're going to see towards the end of this lesson, not this lesson today, but the end of the creed, that's why if you don't make it to heaven, it's ultimately your choice. You refuse it. He's never going to force eternity on you. You make the choice to go to heaven. You make the choice to alienate yourself. And so human freedom, he's the greatest respecter of human freedom. And so that's the negative side, but on the positive side, and this is sort of sums it all up, we, if you're going to be serious about your faith, particularly in the world today, particularly with all the struggles and the trials and the challenges, we've got to take ownership. If you ask the majority of people, why are you Catholic? Why do you believe? Most would say, because I was raised that way. That doesn't work anymore. That's an immature faith, particularly if you're 40 or 50. You may, everybody may give different answers, but... My goal is for the people to pass through here, particularly those who are becoming Catholic. You may not be able to explain it the best to everybody. You may not be willing to shed your blood for the faith. Hopefully, maybe you would be, but I can't, I can't promise. But at least you're going to take ownership. I believe because of this. I understand because of that. And that's where the freedom is engaged, whether it be in the relationship or the intellectual assent to certain truths. And so... This is the hope or my purpose over the course of this year that we, as we come to understand our faith, as we grow in relationship with each other, particularly for those who are going through the process, will find support and love and being part of a community that, that we will all take ownership of our faith and walk out of here saying, I believe because of this, I live this way because of that. Does it make sense? So... This is all sort of the kind of gets us to the end. Like, I believe, I walk out of here, faith is great, it's all wonderful. But 
RCIA is a process and we now, particularly those who are going through the process, are what we call the inquiry phase. Just because you're here, we met BJ last week. Hey BJ, what's up? BJ is in the inquiry phase. How many else in here are, are not baptized or interested in being baptized? Okay, can you give me your name? I'm Gabby. Hey Gabby, how you doing? I'm good. So Gabby and BJ, any of those who are interested in becoming Catholic, you're in the inquiry phase. You may say, this is ridiculous, I want nothing to do with this, I'm out of here. But what it does, I hope you don't, just to tell you, <laughs> is that you, y'all, but all of us, we're on a journey. And so this inquiry phase, we are searching. We are on a, looking for something. And what I want to sort of challenge, this may sound kind of cheesy and silly, but Jesus, over and over again in Scripture, talks about to have true faith, you have to have the faith of a child. All right? And we'll explore what that means. But does that mean, well, you have to be a faith of a child and have the understanding of a three-year-old? No, you don't. Faith of a child. And there's a lot of different ways we can accept that. What is a child's faith? whether it be in the divine or even the human and its understanding of things, what marks out children and their faith and their search? And kids, kids ask a lot of questions, don't they? What about nature, about the car, about God, about whatever? What is it drives their questions? What is it drives a child's search? A desire for understanding, but curiosity, I'm looking for a different word. Closer. Wonder. That's what we're looking for. Tether understands. Wonder. Now, I didn't get a chance because I had a phone call to look up the etymology of wonder, but maybe I'll do it next time. Wonder. When the child wonders, like, why does this work this way? Why is the sun in the sky? And he goes in search, or she goes in search for answers. And so we live in a world where we're not really encouraged to wonder. Everything is explained to us. It's spelled out for us. So for those who are interested in becoming Catholics, or those who are already Catholics, we want to sort of wonder. Not wander, but wonder. To be able to ask questions. To be able to be captivated by beauty. I know that sounds all very, very poetic. To be captivated by the lives of the saints to see the magnificence of the faith. You know, I lived in, in Rome, and I'll kind of close on this, um, for five years. And my job in Rome, my apostolate, was taking people to the tours of St. Peter's, the upstairs Basilica. How many of you have ever been there? All right, if you've been there, you know how great it is. And my favorite, I just love it. Particularly for people who've never been in, you sit outside and explain the history and everything, and then, Walking into St. Peter's, how many of you have been in Rome remember walking into St. Peter's the first time? Raise your hand. It's an experience you never forget. You cannot even begin to imagine what it's like. And so what I would do is I'd say, all right, I'd, I'd, I'd like make them wait outside for a little bit. Don't go in there. Don't be. And then you walk in to watch. I've literally watched hundreds, if not thousands of people's reaction over five years because I did this every week. I've taken 50 to 100 people every week just by the beauty and the magnificence. And then they start wandering because they want to look at stuff. They said, no, come back, we gotta start here. But people crying, people amazed. 
a number of people, because of their experience of St. Peter's and the beauty and the magnificence of St. Peter's, converted to Catholicism. I'm not saying because it was my Torah or something. <laughs> but it was that it's like, wow! It was like overwhelmed by this. Not everybody gets that experience. But that's the hope is, is understanding our faith, understanding the person of Christ, is, yeah, to want to ask questions, to want to search, to want to go on a little journey. Now, granted, that may sound really nice, and then after a few times, you're saying, Father, this is really boring, and I wonder, I wonder why I'm even here. <laughs> but it is. It's the, it's the child who goes running around the, the, the field looking for flowers. There is that, that sense of wonder which really should come from directing our faith. And so what I'm going to sort of encourage is I'm going to send a link as we kind of wrap up with different readings. If you all have any questions, feel free to, 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 to ask them or send me an email. Um, I'm going to have to go soon. We're going to have a little time of questions after this before I have to head out. Um, but to really begin thinking of the questions, begin saying, hey, this is a journey, a process that we're on. And if you've never prayed before, start doing it. You say, Lord, I want to understand better. Give me insight. Heal my heart if that's what's necessary. Because if, if y'all just come here, if we just come here and say, Father's teaching us for an hour and a half, your butt's going to get sore. That's about all. Um, but to say, I want to engage in other people and hopefully we'll get more of a chance to know each other, to be able to develop friendships. Hey, if y'all want to bring some wine or food we talked about a little bit last time, Phil, bring some snacks. I don't care. Y'all probably really probably need some whiskey after listening to me for about three or four weeks. <laughs> Uh, to, to be able to, to engage in that way, just if you're under 21, please let's not do that. Um, but to pray and say, Lord, guide me. Show me the beauty. So I'm going to try my best to also, in some of the stuff, to maybe point to a work of art, to point to a story. Uh, and so the story that I would point to today, um, besides my example of St. Peter's, how many of you have read The Little Prince by Antoine Saint-Exupéry? You're like, yeah. That sort of encapsulates what it's about. It's the search for truth, it's the wonder, it's the love, the beauty, in a very simplistic way. Faith, of course, is more complicated than that, but that gets the heart of what it is for a child to search for the truth, to wonder at something, and to move forward. So, why don't we now, we'll close the game with an Our Father, and we'll have some time for uh, questions and discussion. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. One last comment. I'm going to circle it back to the whole first part. We talked about science and faith and how difficult it might be to believe. I think one of the reasons is that faith is more than an intellectual proposition. And if it engages the whole person and love and relationship are part, are part of it, a lot of those things we just talked about, beauty and love and relationship, cannot be quantified under the scientific method. Simply can't. But yet we believe they exist. And so in a world that is often very bored with itself and there can be so much destruction, if we're searching for answers that way only via the scientific method and empirical proofs, you're probably not going to find it. That it has to take a greater holistic approach by relationship, by love, by beauty, not to circumvent science, but to flesh it out 
so that we could come to a deeper understanding of who we are and who God is. So that's how I think you might respond to that and the, the problem that we have today, that we, we don't fully understand the human person because we've reduced them like Descartes did to sort of mathematical equations. So anyhow, so we do have some time for questions. I'm going to turn my, my <coughs> recorder off so y'all will get everything without the questions and we'll go from there. <laughs>